It's show 151 of the RIM Pro Report. Today, the latest industry news and billow shields of Vercor. This show is sponsored by our good friends at O'Neill Software. In the record storage industry, the barcode is the key to knowing what is what and what is where. But the fact is, managing and printing barcodes is a big pain. I know it was for me in my record center. You might be very surprised to learn that O'Neill is also in the barcode business and generates over 15 million barcode labels per year for their clients in order to save them time, hassle, and headache. If that kind of value intrigues you, you can learn more about this cool service at O'Neillsoft. Dot com. All right, I think it's only right to inform you that the invitation for Miley Cyrus to join us here on the Rim Pro Report has officially been retracted and rescinded. There's just no twerking allowed on this show. Welcome to the Rim Pro Report, the one and only weekly broadcast for the Rim support services industry, bustling with news, views, and the latest updates. This show is full of interesting information. So take notes. Now here's your host, Tom Adams. Yep, it's me. And so here's the deal. Labor Day's over. September's here, and it's time to get back into the fall routine. It was a good summer for me, and I'm excited about the next four months. Lots of cool things happening in the greater Rim services world. How about you? Are you ready to get back at it? Uh, I know there's lots of cool things happening in our world, in this world, and I hope to either see you, meet you, uh, get to know you in uh, some of the conferences that lie ahead that are happening over the next few months. Uh, I'm really looking forward today to talking to Bill O'Shields. Bill is the managing director with Vercor, uh, mergers and acquisitions advisory and brokerage firm. I'm going to ask him all about his past, notably as the CFO with Recall for a number of years. Bill now supports sellers as they prepare to be acquired. Required, so I'm looking forward to chatting with him. But before we talk to Bill, I want to get you caught up on the latest industry news. Last week, Iron Mountain announced the entry, their entry into the Colombian market with the acquisition of Secure Data Solutions Colombia, the document and data protection division of G4S, an international security and outsourcing firm. Secure Data Solutions operates multiple facilities throughout Colombia and has approximately 2.4 million cubic feet of records and data tapes. The deal is estimated to be worth approximately $54 million. So congratulations to both parties in that acquisition. Nade's going to be studying the solid state drive sanitization process in a very formal research program starting this month. The Nade Task Force has created a structured methodology to test the real world application of solid state drive sanitization techniques. Dr. Steven Swanson, a noted expert on sanitization, will conduct the research. And now that September is here, don't forget all the amazing events coming up. O'Neill Partner Conference in a couple of weeks, PRISM events, Data Protection Association event, Nade Shred School, and a whole lot more. You have access to all these items at the drop of a hat on your old computer, laptop, iPod, iPhone, Android, whatever it is, you can find it. More importantly, be sure to get these, get to these events so you can learn and hang out with the ultra cool and amazing people of our great industry. You know, I'd love to hear more about your news or successes so I can pass them along. Drop me an email or call the show hotline and let me know your news. We'll do our best to pass it on. Alrighty, I'm going to get Bill O'Shields on the line. Hold tight while I do. (laughs) 
Bill O'Shields is Managing Director with Vercor, an M&A advisory firm. Bill, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tom. Hey, it's great to have you here. Well, let's begin with your story. In 1981, you head to college at Barry College. What were you planning or dreaming at that time for your life? What were you thinking about? Well, at that time, being a young man, I thought it might be exciting to be a, an FBI agent. Yeah. And I'd heard somewhere along the line that uh, FBI agents were generally investigating white-collar crime and that an accounting degree would be a good degree to kind of step into that field or uh, to go pursue in college before you uh, went after that dream. So I went off to uh, Rome, Georgia with the idea of getting my accounting degree and uh, carrying a badge when I graduated. Wow. That's kind of an interesting and uh, that's kind of an interesting plan. So how did the plan work out? You you get through Barry with an accounting degree? I did, but uh, you know when you get into college things get uh, thrown your way and as a sophomore in college uh, I was blessed to become uh, a husband and a father and uh, concluded uh, when that life event came about that uh, maybe having a a job where you got shot at wasn't the best thing for the family role. Uh, So decided to kind of continue with the accounting degree, but maybe pursue a more traditional accounting uh, job after school. So uh, when I left Barry, um, kind of my next step in in life was to do an internship while I was at school with uh, Deloitte Haskins and Sales at the time, what today is Deloitte and Touche. Right. And then upon graduation, I was one of the few, un, you know, which you don't see much today, is actually had a job before I left school. So right out of school, I started with Deloitte and Touche. And then, so your your role in Deloitte and Touche, you're, you're obviously, uh, you had thought about going into sort of investigative type stuff. Is that kind of where you went once you went to Deloitte? Or did you evolve into more more traditional, or what what kind of things were you doing at Deloitte? Yeah, that's a great question. I had not put that two and two together, but that's true. I started in the audit practice at huh. Deloitte & Touche, and a, and a segment they called Emerging Business Practices. Basically, Deloitte & Touche, being one of the largest international accounting firms, had a lot of blue-chip clients like Coke and so forth in the Atlanta office. But the segment that I worked in in auditing targeted the entrepreneurial high-growth company. Deloitte had the vision that if you caught them while they were up-and-comers, that when they went public, they were already your client. You could you know, continue to serve them in the public market. So all of my clients were entrepreneurial-based, gave me a chance to really learn how to uh, do forensic accounting on entrepreneurial books. Obviously, you know, the books weren't always as clean as you might find in a Coke. So uh, it was a nice opportunity to really get into creating financials out of books that may not have been in the best shape, also getting exposure to entrepreneurial businesses. And uh, as kind of a side part of that, these businesses were often targets of acquisition. So when one of our clients would become the target of an acquisition or look to grow through acquisition, we sometimes got involved in the due diligence. So it was a great kind of first step into the merger and acquisition field that has ultimately you know, kind of been my career over the last 20-something years. So as you kind of learn this stuff in Deloitte and you're experiencing all this, what, what's beginning to uh, transpire in you? Are you beginning to have bigger dreams of a future? Or do you start saying, I want to stay at Deloitte the rest of my life? This is fun. Uh, what, what's going on in that environment that, that um, you know, is happening in that sort of first phase of your career? Yeah, that's a great question. I was at Deloitte for seven years. At the seven, about the five-year mark, you become a manager. 
uh, you're managing multiple audit teams, and you're really getting a view at that point of what the partner's lifestyle is like. And it didn't take me long after getting that view to realize being a partner in an international accounting firm wasn't something I really wanted to spend the rest of my life doing. Uh, they make great money, but you, re you realize that you're really a scorekeeper. You're not really in the game. You're keeping score of the game. And really wanted to get in as a chief financial officer in an operating entity where I could play a role at the C-level uh, executive suite and, and help make decisions, not only keep score, but kind of be part of the play calling team as well. Hmm. So in 92, you step into the RIM industry. So how did you go from Deloitte to recall? Give, give me a sense of that story. Yeah, in 1992, at that point, um, Brambles Industries Limited, which is the uh, parent company of the entity we know today is Recall. At that time, the records management business of Brambles was rec uh, Brambles Records Management. They were the largest provider of RIM services in Australia, public company, uh, looking to grow. And it, they had decided that the United States and North America in particular would be a great place to kind of look to expand. So in late 91, they entered into a letter of intent in Atlanta, Georgia, with a small a privately held information management company called the Vault Company, um, an entrepreneurial-based business similar to the type of clients that I was serving at Deloitte. And they recognized very quickly if they wanted to expand in North America, have uh, sophisticated financial reporting systems, and have an experienced team to go out and do the acquisitions, that they weren't going to inherit that type of team from these acquisitions that they were looking at. So. They uh, came to Deloitte uh, kind of with a, a recruiter, and I was tagged as someone having relevant experience and started work for, uh, at that time, Brambles in uh, early 1992 when they did their first acquisition. From there, we kind of began our acquisition strategy in North America. Wow. So you were part of that original team in terms of the, the finance team that started the whole recall acquisition in North America. So you were right there at the That's beginning of it all. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, you know, when you they just said, we've got a checkbook and, you know, a vision. And at that time, in 92, there was only a couple consolidators in the market. You had Pierce Leahy and you had Iron Mountain who were had somewhat the same vision that, that Recall did. It's entrepreneurial-based business at the time was build a national network of of locations, and we think the larger clients will, will migrate to the uh, multi-site operators, which is largely what we've seen happen over the last 20 years. So um, I was there on day one with the first acquisition, or 30 days after they closed it, and uh, it, it was a great time. It was a, probably one of the most fun seven years of my life was uh, being part of that team that was growing uh, Brambles in, in the United States and North America. So in, in terms of the roles and responsibilities you played and uh, that ac that early phase, that was very much an acquisition focus. You weren't doing any greenfield startup at that point. It was purely acquisitions for those years. Absolutely. We did about 30 transactions over that seven years. Uh, and my role was both the chief financial officer role, which was largely financial reporting. We didn't have to raise capital. Right. Our parent company, Bramble Industries, had that as a public company. But it was all financial reporting, finding acquisitions, negotiating with the entrepreneur, or if there was a broker involved at that time, doing the due diligence, at least the financial due diligence and some of the operational due diligence, then integrating that business into uh, our growing entity. So it was a you know fast pace. It was never dull. Um, you know, one thing I've learned even today: every transaction is different. Every 
infant rim operator operates a little bit differently. So it was a fun time to see just all the different ways people have come up with to make a dime in this business. Yeah. So looking back at that time at recall, and obviously you said 30 transactions, significant amount of stuff going on. Um, what were some of the important lessons you learned as it related to, um, you know, the, the rim industry, as it related to financials, as it related to, you even said some of the ways people made money, but looking back at that specific time, what, what were the things that stand out to you as, you know, light bulb moments that, that you would have never got being at the Deloitte side of the, of the equation, um, or, you know, potentially what were some of the things that really, uh, caused you to go, oh, this is this is really cool. T tell me some of the things you learned along the way. Yeah, one of the things that was a real eye-opener for me coming from Deloitte, which is all financials and numbers and reporting and systems, uh, it wasn't until I got to recall and, and really lived with what you bought, not just the 30 days thereafter, but the 12 to 2 years after you bought it and seeing how integration really worked over time that I realized that it really is all about the people. You hear people say, you know, this, we're a service business, that, you know, the strength of my business is the strength of my people. And in a lot, of, a lot of ways we saw that both when we bought acquisitions and maybe we didn't keep the owner um, in place who had those customer relationships. Hmm. Or we bought something and integrated it and that strong manager that they had didn't come over with us. Um, you realize that the true value uh, and your ability to keep what you bought was a lot of time predicated on how well you were able to retain those qualified people that had be built that business and, and had those relationships um, going forward. Also, you know, as you're building a national organization, and, and I see this today with some of the consolidators, you know, sometimes struggling, you want to have consistent systems throughout, and you want to create synergies, but you can really go too far when it comes to cutting back on staff, um, trying to dumb down the business in some cases to make it consistent everywhere and losing some of that entrepreneurial flair, uh, you can really ruin a culture hmm. of an acquired business and create disgruntled employees and dissatisfied customers and uh, really ruin some of the value that you purchased along the way. Yeah, that's that's very that's a very interesting perspective. And so in terms of, of your role at Recall, you saw some of that. Um, in terms of some of the more financial aspects of the, um, you know, the acquisition equation, what were some of the critical things you saw as, you know, the, the finance guy in these acquisitions? What were some of the things you learned um, about RIM companies at that point in time? And I realize that's a, a number of years ago now, but uh, some of that stuff has obviously stuck with you over the years, but maybe name some of the things that were, were really kind of big uh, things for you at, from a financial side. Sure. Systems integration, and when we talk about financial reporting systems and the operational systems, is a big part of, of you know, growing a national REM business. Um, your customers are expecting you, when you sell them a service across multiple geographies, to be able to get similar reports, to be able to see their inventory across multiple geographies. So having the operational systems in place to do that is something that every consolidator aspires to. Um, but as you know, there's multiple operating platforms out there uh, for inventorying. Uh, every entrepreneur has a different way of billing customers and, 
and the type of transactions they bill for, and do they bill in advance, do they bill in arrears, all these things you've got to kind of go into with a plan of how I'm going to create some consistency across the platform without alienating customers. And anybody will tell you there's no quicker way to lose a customer than to stop billing them correctly. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, the industry, I've seen everything from the more detail you can send the, the client, the more confused they get and the less likely they are to, you know, to, to have a problem. They just pay their bill. Um, but that's a strategy that, that doesn't work with everybody. So, um, you know, making sure you have a system that you can bill consistently, bill accurately and timely um, was one of the, the things that I saw from a financial standpoint that was very important. And I still hear stories today of my clients that we sold uh, to consolidators that sometimes may not have integrated as well in certain locations. And billing still comes up as you know, a major item to make a, a customer disgruntled. So in terms of those being acquired, and I realize we're maybe popping ahead of, of our conversation or the, the, you know, what we might talk about in a few minutes, but as an acquirer uh, looking at um, small independent rim businesses, uh, how important was it as an acquirer to, to look into the systems they had and um, have some stability to those because I, I can only imagine as you did those 30 transactions you saw every kind of system was there there one that made more sense and I'm not talking in terms of what software system I'm talking about how people thought about it and how the importance they placed on it uh, you know I guess I can't really say that as I look back I would say we should have done this or we should have gone that path um, I would say that, you know, if you, having a system that you can find the boxes is always a good thing yeah. and that you can bill your customer correctly. Those were the two things that, that you wanted to make sure you had in place. And it, you, you were never going to generally acquire a management team that, that could implement what you were doing over what they were doing easily. So the, the companies that have tapped um, integration teams, people who came into an acquisition post right at closing and said, I am here for the 30, 60, 90, whatever the timetable is, to kind of integrate you into our system and have people who that was their mm. role. It wasn't a part-time role for somebody. Right. That was their role. They've generally done a better job of integrating. Uh, the other thing I would say is that the companies who had started consolidation who say, ah, let's not change anything in the beginning. We don't want to mess up the, you know, some of the things we talked about, the culture and so forth. And then get a year down the road, and suddenly they've got 12 different businesses that are on 12 different platforms, and they've really done nothing to create a, a cohesive unit. Get in trouble because it's a lot easier to integrate things one at a time than to try to big bang across a you know a multi-location unit. Right. We've seen that validations that maybe have not gone as well. Uh, a lot of it is they didn't put any time or effort into integration as they were building up their number of locations. Huh. So this this uh, pretty cool adventure sounds like to me this uh, this time you had at Recall uh, it seems to end in 1999 and you leave Recall and move into a similar role it sounds like at America's Power Sports. So what caused the switch? What was what was the um, the reason to head over to American Power Sports? Well, there were a couple things that came up that kind of converged at that point in time. Recall. Um, had decided just prior to, to that which that they wanted to make their their business. They had we were running North America. We had a, there was a separate team 
running the European rim business, and then they had the Australian business. They said, we want to basically globalize this business and have one senior team. That team's going to be at Atlanta. And, Bill, we want you to be the CFO, which was, would have been a very exciting opportunity, and, and it would have been global travel. Uh, fortunately, I had small kids at that point in time, mm. and the uh, idea of me traveling all over the globe while my wife's at home with uh, small kids was a little disconcerting, and I got a phone call from a recruiter who said, Bill, you know, I got your name. Uh, you seem to have great skills for what we're trying to do. We want to do a consolidation in the power sports industry, basically buy mom, some of the larger mom-and-pop motorcycle or power sports dealers. They did more, more than motorcycles across the country and create a national chain. Like in, today, we have an auto nation in the car side. It was kind of that same concept on the power sports side. Uh, the funny thing was, I said, well, how did you come across my name? And they said, well, we were looking for candidates, and we talked to John Kenny at Iron Mountain, who was obviously a public company at the time, so they had good vision to John. And John and I had been butting heads for years on acquisitions. We were all competing for the same thing. So I thought it was the smartest move you ever did. He says, I'll get rid of my competition by sticking a recruiter on him. That's and, hilarious. Uh, sure enough. Yeah, it was a great opportunity, chance to get some equity. It was a private equity back consolidation, so it was a chance to go out and raise capital for the first time. Up to that point, Brambles had had the checkbook we needed, so I had not been in the capitals market. So it was a nice career move for me, and uh, that's that caused to move to Nashville, which is, was a great place to raise the kids. So that's kind of how we got to the power sports world. Okay, so then um – you're you're there for a number of years. What was because you said you actually moved into the capital side, so you've had all this acquisition work. You were, you know, you have the training in Deloitte. You got all this stuff building in you. Now you you do all this work at America Power Sports. What was the biggest lesson or lessons you learned while uh, in that role at Power Sports? I guess I'd say the biggest lesson I learned was not every industry should be consolidated. It was the same business from us. If you buy these uh, individual mom-and-pop-owned power sports dealers around the country, um, it got a bigger enterprise. You could create synergies. You could bring a professionalism to the management of the store, um, which is a great theory in a lot of industries, and it was worked perfectly in the rim industry. Um, what I realized in the power sports industry is that's very much a local business. It's a retail business. You've got local consumers coming into a store, wanting to talk to a, uh, a, an ownership team that were enthusiasts, not corporate guys. Right. And so we bought a dozen acquisitions over the years, made it a big business, one of the largest power sports dealership groups in the country at $200 million, but really weren't bringing a lot of value over and above what we paid for when we bought it. We weren't creating synergies. We weren't generally driving revenues because we had 12 locations around the country. It was very much a local business. So... It was a you know kind of a eye opener to me when I stepped in. It, oh yeah, it looks like a great place to do a consolidation, um, but in the end, there just wasn't any value created. Bigger wasn't necessarily better in that particular space. Very interesting. Very interesting. So in 2004, you uh, joined Vercor. So tell me about Vercor as a business, and then what drove you into the M&A world at this point in time. Yeah, I guess I'd always been doing M&A, so I, it wasn't really right. drawn into the my, my role at America's Power Sports continued to be find entrepreneurs, negotiate deals, close transactions, integrate, just like at Recall. So I'd always been in the M&A world, loved that side of the business, but up to that point, I had always been on the buyer side. Right. 
And I learned a few things along the way that when I left America's Power Sports and thought, what do I want to do next? How do I want to employ the skills that I have on mergers and acquisitions? And I really thought about the other side of the table. What I'd learned on the buyer side is that any time I could cuddle up next to a seller, it was one-on-one, -on -one, there wasn't a broker, it wasn't a competitive process, I could always buy it cheaper than when there was a broker involved and I was competing with somebody else. That's just, you know, it's common sense. I also realized that most sellers who were doing transactions on their own, representing themselves, it was a very uh, emotional time. Mm. You know, they had built their baby over years, and now they were negotiating. Somebody was telling them it was worth a dollar more or a dollar less, less or this due diligence uh, issue wasn't ideal. And they take it personally, and it's right. so distracting and can be disruptive to their business. So I saw that there is real value to having a broker on the seller side. So I switched sides of the table. Hmm. And Vercor gave me that opportunity. Vercor uh, is a generalist firm. Uh, we do mergers and acquisitions in all industries. We generally represent uh, the seller. Occasionally I do represent buyers in some segments but because of my background. But by and large, we represent sellers. And today in the RIM industry, we exclusively represent sellers. And you know, tr try to, uh, you know, make that process smoother for our clients and provide more options to our clients than if they just took a phone call from Iron Mountain who called today or Access or whomever right. on a transaction. Right. Okay. So the, this industry seems to have had a pretty significant round of acquisitions over the last couple of years as, as I've watched it. And I, you know, every week on this show, I for for months it seemed like every week I was reporting something it seems like through the last summer it's kind of slowed a little bit I I always expect that once we get back from the summer another round of of announcements will come but so I, I expect there's more on the horizon but from your perspective where is the action going to be because I think someone who who now plays a role as a a broker as an advisor in the mergers and acquisitions, particularly on the seller side, you you have to keep looking at this particular industry as a place to, you know, to make money in your future. So um, where's the action going to be? Is the paper storage part of the industry still where the best action is? Because it seems that's what people are still buying. G give me your perspective on on what's happening in the in the mergers and acquisitions part of this industry. Well, I guess if you go back 20 years, you can see kind of ebbs and flows and interest kind of migrate in one direction versus another. But what has generally been true for the entire 20 years is that paper is king when it comes to M&A. It's right. the segment of the business that buyers place the highest value on. Um, so I think that will continue to be the trend you, and for obvious reasons. The paper is the, the safer uh, cash flow. Right. So it's the contracted cash flow. You've got permanent removal fees. Has historically had pretty good internal growth dynamics, although that has you know changed quite a bit over the last few years. So I think the interest in acquisitions will still be primarily focused on the hard copy, the paper side. With that being said, magnetic media still is a very profitable business, and there's still interest in that, especially when it's a segment of a larger records management operation. Um, shredding is still a lot of activity in the shredding side. Um, although what drives value a little bit on, on a, as values that in flow is what's, how hungry are the buyers and how many of them are there out there. And that certainly has changed over the years. It's changed a bit in the last year or two, and I think we're going to 
some additional changes over the next year or so um, as I think the consolidators continue to consolidate. Right. Uh, right. Retreat X get acquired by Access. You saw Information Stores Consolidation Corporation get acquired by Iron Mountain. The Cornerstone jettison their M&A group in last year, which is usually a sign that maybe they're preparing for some sort of liquidity event. That would not surprise me if we saw that in the reasonably near future. So when you start looking at who's the buyers out there and how many of them there are, you've got you know multiple buyers and they're hungry. The multiples tend to migrate up for the things that they're interested in. Right. Um, as an example, CentOS has always been very active in the shredding side, as have others. Today, CentOS is largely the, the bigger buyer there. Some of the traditional buyers from the records management side have gotten less enamored with the shredding side as they see the price of paper fluctuate over the last few years as it has. So there's less buyers on the shredding side, and as a result, we've seen multiples on the shredding side drop fairly dramatically compared to what they, where they were three to five years ago. Wow. And and that's an, I mean, that part of sort of having a sense of where the future is becomes uh, very important, obviously, as as companies, small business owners, uh, entrepreneurs think even about selling their businesses. So uh, based on the deals you've done, the rim space, not just as an M&A advisor and broker, but also, you know, back in your work in recall, uh, what were some of the most important items you've uncovered as you prepare a RIM business to, step, to sell? What are, what are things that owners should be thinking in today's world that are critically important to their ability to sell their business? Yeah, as a business owner, you can't control the number of buyers or their appetite at any point in time. You could try to time your sale to when maybe the buyers are a little more aggressive, but the things you can focus on every day are what have traditionally been and remain today and probably will be into the future, what I'll call some of the major value driver segments of your business. Some of those are quality of revenue. So whatever segment you're in, how strong is your revenue stream? Is it predictable? Is it protected? Is it growing? You have contracts and liability. Things that if you've been in the industry for a long time and you go to or you go to PRISM, you've been hearing about um, for, for many years. Those are still as true today as they were in the past. So when you go to sell, there's always going to be a focus on the quality of revenue. Hmm. Um, there's going to be a focus on your cash flow. And everybody manages their business to report to Uncle Sam the most reasonable number they can, and that's just life. Um, but being able to kind of have a forensic account come in when it's time to sell it and kind of unwind some of those transactions or some of those expenses that may not be there for the buyer so that you right. can really demonstrate the true earnings potential of the business. Those are the things that a buyer can is in charge of. Uh, I mean, sellers in charge that they can focus on and kind of manage prior to going out to the sell. And we encourage everybody, if you think you're going to sell your business in the next two years, don't wait till you're ready to sell to start talking to an advisor. Get somebody in who's going to take the time to kind of do a self-assessment, a, a pre-market due diligence is what we call it, to make sure that if you, you do try and sell your business today, you're going to you know, pass all the tests a buyer's looking for. But identify that a year or so out from you really wanting to exit so you've got time to cure anything or, or fix anything that, that might 
add value to the equation down the road. Yeah. Well, it seems like as the acquisitions have continued and there's a bigger appetite from acquirers, uh, there seems to be more and more people in the industry who provide similar services in the M&A areas. Uh, and, you know, we're, I'm talking to you today. I've talked to other people in the M&A space that, you know, are colleagues of yours, people you know that you've, you've worked with for years. But how, how do small businesses effectively choose an advisor? Is, is there a formula or is it just sort of gut instinct? What, what is, if somebody's sort of been approached by an acquirer like Iron or Access or, or Recall or Cintas or one of these companies and they've been approached – and they go, I need help with this. Is there a, a an effective way to say, yeah, I need to do some work. I need to do some of this pre-market due diligence, as you've you've called it. How do you how do you go about choosing an an advisor for yourself? What's the best way? Yeah, it, it's true that it seems like uh, anytime the industry jettisons an executive, they suddenly show up at back in the industry the next day as a self-proclaimed M and A expert. So there's a lot of options out there. And a business owner, just like any other tr- major transaction in their life, selling their business is probably the largest financial transaction they'll enter into over their career. Right. So do some due diligence of the advisors that you have to choose from. And there's many good advisors out there. Yeah. Uh, we do a great job, but we're not the only one. So the things that I think um, have kind of proven themselves out over time, is the advisor a full-time M&A person? Or is this kind of an end-of-career hobby or a part-time business for them? There are people who do M&A but do a bunch of other things. I'm a firm believer that you know, to be really good at something, you've got to focus on it. And so you know, talk to the advisors, find out what their backgrounds were, and have they been an M&A advisor in this space for many, many years? It's easy to find out, the, you know, to determine who the, the true players are from the pretenders. Right. I think credentials are, are important. I've always thought that it was important to to maintain my certified public accounting credentials. I'm a certified valuation analyst. I'm a Series 7 securities licensed professional. I believe that this profession is is very complex to do a merger and acquisition transaction and to, you know, have those credentials, which require me every year to get over 100 hours of continuing professional education in topics like tax which is a very important aspect. It's not what you get, it's what you keep in a transaction. Right, so, right. So at, take a look at your the professional options and, and find out what the credentials of the potential advisor are. And then reputation is huge. You ought to be able to get a client list from every professional out there of the transactions they've closed in the last two to three years and talk to those business owners. Ask a question I, I love for, for my, um, my prospective clients to call and ask my former clients is, did you feel like Bill brought value? Did you get more for the business because Bill was involved? It's a great question, and it's an answer that you ought to get a comfortable response from. Right, right. Well, it's a it's continues to be an interesting time. I, I expect for you as someone who, who works diligently in this M&A space, specifically in our industry, I realize you do things outside of our industry, but you, you have a, a unique connection to this industry. And uh, I, I hope for you that, that you have many uh, fun and interesting days ahead. Uh, it's It continues to be, to me, it continues to be a question people ask me. What's happening? What do you think is happening? What's going on? Um, a lot of uh, the independents, um, you know, continue to grow their businesses and are having great success. Uh, but as we see what's happening at Recall, as we see what's happening like at Access, 
um, iron, all, all the, you know, to me, it just seems like there's lots, there's lots of acquisitions ahead. So it'll be an interesting uh, couple of years I expect for you. So continued success in what you're doing. And, and thanks so much for sharing your insights, your history, your story, and your perspective. It's been, it's been great hearing your story and learning more about you today, Bill. Well, thanks, Tom. I've enjoyed it as well. All right. Well, we'll talk to you soon and uh, continued success. Well, there you have it. That was really good. I like the whole concept that Bill talked about, which is quality of revenue, quality of revenue, predictable, protected, and growing. Now, that's a great question to ask yourself. What's the quality of your revenue? Even if you aren't selling your business anytime soon, uh, it's worth asking that question of yourself and of your business. Special thanks to Bill for joining us, sharing his story, and giving us a lot more insight in terms of what he knows and has experienced. And thank you for joining us as well and listening to the show today. I really appreciate it. Finally, I want to thank our official sponsors, O'Neill Software. You know, they they just keep doing cool stuff, and uh, I, I know that many of you are going to be attending the conference uh, in a couple of weeks, the Partners Conference, and I I know for a fact that O'Neill continues to push the bar, to push themselves to deliver excellence in everything they do. And uh, I, I hope that those of you who are going to attend this conference will have the opportunity to really dig in and learn some more stuff about uh, the, the product they make and provide you. It's a great product. And if you're interested in learning more about O'Neill, learning more about their products and services and attending the conference, because I think there's still available room for that, then head on over to O'Neillsoft.com to learn more. That's it for now. Have yourselves a great week. We'll talk to you next time. We are out of here. Thanks for joining us on the Rim Pro Report with Tom Adams. If you enjoyed the show, please tell others. Our website is www.rimproreport.com. This broadcast is produced and hosted by Flourish Press Inc. Join us again soon.